This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. What an exciting afternoon we've had talking about the origins of art. And I'm going to continue in the tradition, but compare the uh, origins of language and the origins of language in the child. I think that we will see parallels in the drive to communicate, which is, uh, I think, an innate drive that we bring to the creation of art and to the creation of language. So I'm going to start with something that should draw your attention, the aesthetic of this face, uh, the eyes that we can't resist, the uh, symmetry, the skin that we love to touch. Uh, but the object of the conversation today is not really to talk about the um, outward visage of this face, but to talk about what's going on inside that little mind. Uh, what's going on inside that little mind is indeed a beautiful thing. And uh, we are continually surprised by what infants demonstrate they can do as they try to acquire any of the complexities of, of human traits such as language. So I'm going to um, illustrate what we've learned about learning uh, in the past decade and where that work is going and try to draw parallels when possible with the work on the creation of art and also to uh, tell you when we know something about the uh, origins of this capacity in uh, other animals. So uh, again, I want to start with a puzzle. Here's a puzzle about language acquisition. Uh, the fact that there is a critical period in our ability to learn a first or a second language is apparent uh, in all of the studies that have been done across the last um, 40, 50 years. Uh, what's interesting about this curve is that it's the reverse of a typical learning curve. We think as adults we can learn things better. We use our superior cognitive skills to approach any task. But what you see here, if you want to find your age on the horizontal axis uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, predict your language skills on the vertical axis as a function of age, uh, what you see is that the uh, babies and young children are geniuses between their birth and about seven years of age. They can simply uh, be uh, immersed in a new culture and absorb uh, that language that, that has been agreed upon by that culture to serve to uh, share ideas with one another. And as you go from the age of seven towards 10 and then towards 15, and behold, if you're beyond the ages of 17 to 39, it's really quite difficult if you're trying to learn Tagalog, I feel your pain. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult. And so what we're trying to understand in uh, the um, ontogeny and phylogeny of language is what is it that makes uh, us create this ability in the young to acquire new languages and then sort of locks us in and uh, doesn't allow us to easily uh, penetrate the rules of, of another language. And so we're starting with the babies and trying to understand what is it that they're putting to work 
in that early period, and what do they lose as they age, or what is it that causes? While we all agree on this curve, there's not a scientist who disagrees with this curve. The explanation is hotly debated. What is it about aging that um, allows us to find it so difficult to, to learn a new language, even when the desire is there? So I'm going to tell you today that it's not just computation. The traditional approaches have uh, pointed to a, a, a kind of modular approach to, um, to language learning and that it's hugely computational. We have demonstrated it's very computational. Babies are taking statistics as they listen to us talk. It's a marvelous thing and it's very, very interesting, a kind of passive uh, capability that they extract as we talk some of the statistics of the language. It shapes their brains and leans them towards a particular language. But the surprising thing that I want to introduce today is how complex uh, the situation is that allows that computation to be taken. So there's a, a huge social interaction component that seems to be essential to the um, use of the computational skills that, that babies put to work. Now, how do we know this? Well, we've been looking at infants across um, many, many different cultures using either behavioral measures as illustrated here, and I won't go into detail, but in eight or nine different countries, we've been testing babies by having them sit on their mother's or their father's laps while we entertain them with toys, and we have them listen to the sounds of various languages, and then we change the sound from one to another to see if the babies will orient towards the change in the sound coming from the loudspeaker uh, so here we have a loudspeaker producing a sound, baby sitting on the mother's lap, um, a distractor toy keeping the baby's attention here. The sounds are coming out of the loudspeaker, ba, 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 ba. When it changes to pa, if the baby turns, something magic happens in the black box. Six-monthers find this very, very exciting. <laughs> and in about 20 trials, you can train babies all over the planet to do this little task. We test all languages, uh, the sounds of all languages of the world, and ask what can babies do? What do they come with? What machinery allows them to, um, or not, to discriminate the sounds of the world's languages? We can also use brain measures, uh, event-related potentials. Babies wear a little cap. We're sensing the electrical activity. The electrical activity signals their ability to distinguish the sounds. So what's the answer to the query? The query is, can infants uh, discriminate? Can they discern the important differences that are going to, to indicate meaningful differences between words a few months from the age that you see them uh, here, which is about six months? And the answer is yes, they're universalists. They're citizens of the world. No matter what sound, from what language, from what culture you present to babies, they can hear the distinctions. And this is surprising because the parents sitting in back of them and all of us have a complete inability to do that. We're language-bound listeners. We can hear the distinctions between the languages used in our cultures, language or languages. We are not able to discern the differences. Japanese adults cannot hear the difference between R and L no matter how much training. The language doesn't uphold that distinction. They don't use it. They cannot distinguish it. But the surprise then comes is in that babies who start out at this point, so these are Japanese and American babies tested at six to eight months, either with head turn or event-related potentials. There's 65%, way above chance, very, very good. And then two months later, something very interesting happens. American babies, uh, for whom R and L signals the difference between important words, get much, much better. And Japanese babies get much, much worse. So something's happening in that little space of time to create the citizen, take the citizen of the world and turn them into a culture-bound listener when, right before words are acquired. So the question is, what's going on during that period? This is a very sensitive period where the kids are mapping what it is that we're saying. And I'll tell you two things. First, 
it's computation. They truly are using statistical techniques to plot, in a sense, mentally plot, the distribution of sounds they're hearing from us, and their discrimination depends on the relative distributions of the sounds. You can, you can up the probability that they can hear the distinction or lower it by changing the distribution of sounds that they hear over a couple of minutes. So there's a powerful computational mechanism that's operating in infants. But I'm here today to tell you something about the social complexities, the social mechanisms that this drive to communicate and the information they take from us as they listen to us speak that it seems to enable this process. So for any of you who have ever talked to an infant or watched anyone else talk to an infant, you know it produces a fairly unique kind of signal. If I plot the physics of it, you see something like this. On the top record, it's labeled AD, adult-directed speech. The bottom record is labeled ID for infant-directed speech. And the eyeball test will tell you these are vastly different signals. And if you had your uh, ears attuned to, to it, you would notice immediately that these are very different signals. Uh, the mother on the uh, adult record, adult-directed record, is saying, I had a little bit, and the doctor gave me bendectin for it. So it's an ordinary uh, tone of voice for a, an adult female. It's not boring, but it's not wild. It doesn't have wild excursions in pitch. But then this same mom turns to her two-monther sitting on her lap, and she does something akin to music. She says, can you say, ah? Say, ah. Hey, you, say hi. Hi. I cannot do that without a baby in my hands, right? Uh, so she does something that musicians do perceive as music. It's very melodic. It's very, the excursions are, she jumps an octave in pitch on average, uh, and the excursions are wild. And it's a very pleasing sound. You immediately hear the emotion in the voice. Uh, it is something that graduate students like listening to in a foreign language when they're very stressed out because it's immediately <laughs> soothing. Motherese, parentese, fatherese, because we all do it regardless of culture. It's universal. Um, is a very pleasant signal to listen to. And infants, typically developing infants, are very attracted to them. So if you give them a little test in the laboratory and allow them to choose between infant-directed and adult-directed speech in any language, they'll do whatever they have to do to turn on infant-directed speech, even if you create just a pure tone of it. So if you extract all the words and simply let them listen to <laughs> adult-directed speech, as opposed to <laughs> that's infant-directed speech, they will pick the latter. So we have, we have a universal phenomenon. We have infant interest in that phenomenon. And the question is, what, what good does that do for children? We've subsequently learned that uh, mothery signals are simpler semantically, simpler syntactically, and from a phonetic standpoint, they're much more beautiful, meaning they are, the stretched out vowels and sounds of motheries are clearer, more distinct versions of the phonetic units of the language, which we think is excellent for the baby brain as they map the signal. So kids' attention to infant-directed speech as a signal they're very, very attracted to is important. And in fact, we may have, in the selection of motheries over um, a computer-generated analog that is created using the tones that are in speech, but uh, mimicking them with pure tones so that you've got a chord that changes over time, we may have a diagnostic marker for autism. What I show you in this slide is a preference for speech uh, versus non-speech analogs in children with autism. 
And I'll play you the two signals. They, this is a choice that toddlers are making by making slight head turns to the right or left. Here's the mother ease signal. Look at I have. Look at I have. <gasps> it's a pot. So a mother is saying, look what I have. It's a pot. And here's the non-speech analog. That's a very strange signal. And typically developing children will listen to it once or twice, but not prefer it. Children with autism prefer it hands down, over and over. You see the relative preference in the height of these uh, bars. Now this is exciting in toddlers because it's a test that can be run at 15, uh, 15 weeks at reliably. And so we're now in process testing children, siblings of children with autism to see if it's a diagnostic marker. So the, the message here is that there is something about social engagement that seems to be important in the language learning process. And it gets even more complicated, uh, the um, necessity and the interest in, the, in a brain that cares about uh, social interaction when we look at experiments like the following. So here again is a picture of the data when you go to Taiwan and uh, test babies there and test babies in America on a Chinese contrast. Now this is a contrast important to Mandarin but not to English. To my ears it sounds like she she, but to any Mandarin speaker that sounds totally distinct. And my graduate students who speak Mandarin are always saying, Dr. Cool, can't you try a little bit harder on this contrast because it's easy to hear, <laughs> as easy as ba and pa, but I cannot do it. So we invented the following um, experiment. We had shown, as this slide does, that Taiwanese babies, by the time they get to 10 to 12 months, have gotten much better at this contrast, and American babies much worse. We decided to expose American babies to Mandarin in 12 very natural play sessions in, uh, in the laboratory. So it was as though we'd given babies the experience uh, that they had relatives who were Mandarin speaking and they came and moved in for six weeks and they talked to the babies on 12 different occasions over a 12 week period, starting at nine months when we think we're at a very sensitive uh, phase. And the question we originally started what, with was, uh, do babies' computational capacities allow them to compute the statistics on a brand new language when given to them for the first time? And so after this um, exposure, we wanted to test them to see what they, what they learned. What does that do to the brain of the child? Now here's, here's one of the sessions, so you get a feel for the complexity, especially socially, of this setting. Jasper, How's your Mandarin coming along? Uh, now watch the infant as they attend in these settings. They're very, very, very engaged in them. Okay, so the question was, what do babies learn? What do we do to their brains by exposing them to 12 sessions? And of course, we had to run a control group, maybe just coming into the laboratory 
is very, very interesting and stimulates capacities that in language that would be general. So here's the outcome for the control group. The, these are the kids who had just come in for their 12 sessions and heard English speakers using the same books and toys, but they are the Amer American graduate students speaking English. But compare them to the babies who'd come in to listen to Mandarin for 12 sessions, and they are statistically indistinguishable from the kids growing up in Taiwan who've been listening for 11 months, almost 11 months by this time. So we had seen in this uh, situation an amazing capacity to acquire information on the fly in a live situation, very, very natural in simple play that kids are absorbing the information. So in answer to our first question, yes, they can take the statistics on a brand new language. But our question was, what does the human being have to do with it? As we watched the interaction uh, between the infants and these foreign speaking tutors, and the eye movements and the complexity of the tracking the infants seemed to do, we were compelled to run the following experiment. So we had been videotaping all of the tutors and we created these beautiful, uh, you know, on a plasma television set, uh, exposures that were run in exactly the same way. So another group of babies got the exact same experience with regard to what language they heard, uh, but not in the presence of a live human being. It was simply um, a videotaped playing versus an audio tape. So there were two more groups brought in, audio alone and auditory visual in a kind of DVD. Now there are lots of people selling tapes saying teacher baby French or whatever um, with video or audio. So that was our question. And the answer is what did we do to the baby? Well, here's the result for the audio group. No learning whatsoever. Here's the result for the video group. Absolutely no learning whatsoever. So the point of this illustration is that there is something in social interaction that the babies are deriving from being in the presence of a person with all of the emotion that we were seeing. We noticed, for example, that babies waiting in the waiting room for the foreign speaking tutors would watch the door eagerly, waiting to see when the foreign speaker would come pick them up, whereas babies in the video group were you know, not emoting. So there is something about the emotional content, the social exchange, uh, biologists have said to me it's pheromones that, that are communicated in the presence of a live human being. You need a social human being to uh, learn, at least at this age, in this style of language experiment. So it raises all of the issues about what is the uh, creation of language uh, about, what is it, what part of it is the drive to communicate, what part of it is the um, interaction that takes place when humans try to uh, teach uh, each other something. And we wonder then, are there parallels in the uh, animal kingdom for these, what we think of as quite sophisticated skills? So we, I note that in bird, the development of bird song, and I won't have time to go into it in detail, there are very intriguing parallels, not only with the computational capacities and during a sensitive period. So we see here in songbirds a sensory learning period followed by a motor practice period. Same thing in babies. Babies are mapping as they listen to us speak in the first six to eight months of life, and then they will begin to produce. And this drive to coo back and babble back to adults is very interesting. We also note that during that sensory learning period, certain bird species, but of course not all, need to be in the presence of another conspecific. So adult birds singing need to be there for baby birds, zebra finches in particular, to learn. So the social aspects of uh, communication learning 
seem to be not unique to humans, uh, and maybe the neurobiology of it can be explored and has been explored in birds in a, in a totally new way. I'm going to close with this. There's a lot going on in infant brains. There's a lot going on in our brains, too, and we've seen today the, all the evidence of what imaging has produced. But having a brain imaging technique that works with infants zero to five has not previously been possible. However, we're now uh, applying uh, MEG magnetoencephalography uh, techniques. This looks like a hair dryer. The graduate students like to call it the hair dryer from hell. But it is a completely non-invasive, totally safe uh, measurement tool that with sensors in the doer, it looks like this hair dryer type device, is picking up the activity of millions of neurons working together and which emit a, a magnetic field that changes as neural activity uh, goes forward. And so as you sit in the hair dryer, uh, the 306 sensors pick up the activity and can plot with millisecond, that's the advantage over fMRI, millisecond accuracy and millimeter spatial localization act, you know, capacity. Now, we're very excited about this, not only because it's a device non-invasive, noiseless, so unlike fMRI, it's not producing any noise, but here's what's fun. This is, uh, we're the first in the world to record uh, awake babies doing something interesting in an MEG machine in Helsinki. This is the machine we're gonna buy. This is Emma, who is listening to Finnish and Russian and English, and we're looking at what her little brain is doing, and we're obviously going to run experiments in which we're uh, able to see how she reacts when she's simply listening, you know, just computation alone, as, as opposed to a live human being versus a television set. What happens in the brain as our motivation and drive to communicate uh, goes up because we're in the presence of another human being. So uh, we're very excited for the technologies that will allow us not only to look at the ontogeny of complex skills like language, but the capacity to appreciate and create art. These are the skills that uh, make us human and can be compared uh, across species, and it's going to be a very interesting decade. So thank you very much.